When I hear this parable, I immediately, at least at face value, get frustrated with it. Because it seems to imply this, again at face value. Live your whole life in sin. Live your whole life in sin so intensely that perhaps you'll be miserable enough by the end of it that you will repent and believe in God and be saved. Or, you can try to follow God's commands, sure, but know that you'll be so burnt out by the end of it that you will ultimately fail and be bitter towards God and reject Him. That's what it seems to say to me at first glance. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that we should intensely embrace sin so as to have one moment of conversion, rather than try our best to follow Him but do so only hypocritically. But rather, he's addressing a very specific and not a very small group of people. A very specific and not a very small demographic. And that is the Pharisees and their sin and the nature of their sin. So in order to talk about the Pharisees and the nature of their sin, we have to look at all three groups that are addressed here. The Pharisees and the nature of their sin the tax collectors in the nature of their sin, and the prostitutes in the nature of their sin. Once we address all three, we can have a clearer picture. With the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the nature of their sin is that both lead to social shame. Both lead to social shame. The tax collectors are going to be those people who reject their own Jewish heritage so that they can make a quick buck and be accepted by the Roman Empire. With that sin comes social shame. And then the prostitutes are going to be those who reject their own parents, their own family, so that they can embrace a life of lust and also money. With that sin comes social shame. And so in order for them to belong again, they must reject the sin. The cost of their sin is a lack of belonging. And so then the way in which they re-belong is by coming into contact with the love of Jesus. And the effect of each of these sins also matters. St. John of the Cross says the effect of greed is sadness. No man can remain sad long enough until he has to convert. The effect of lust, the prostitutes, is hatred of God. No man can live bitter towards God for long enough before he has to convert. But then we get to the group of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, whose sin we know, is pride. And the thing about pride is that it usually isn't opposed to the virtuous life to some degree. Pride grows up like the weeds grow up alongside the wheat, like we hear in the Gospel of Matthew. Sometimes pride motivates us in order to be virtuous. And you see this in the life of the Pharisees. They're not tax collecting. They're not selling their bodies sexually. They're not doing these societally shameful things. And so they never feel the pain of unbelonging. 
and therefore they can experience the full effect of the sin of pride, which is not sadness like greed, which is not hatred of God like lust, but it's spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. This is the effect of pride. And you see it very clearly because there are very few groups of people in the Gospels that interact with Jesus more than the Pharisees. And the Pharisees can't recognize that Jesus is God. Now, this spiritual blindness is because they're so obsessed with their own righteousness and their own glory that comes from it that they cannot see anymore that their life is about the glory of God. In fact, this is why they get Jesus killed, because Jesus is taking glory from them. They become jealous of Jesus. And so this blindness then causes for them a new orientation. This blindness causes a new orientation that now their ultimate law is not, let me love the Lord with all my heart and soul and strength and my neighbor as myself, but let me just stay out of shameful things. And this is where our timeline runs up against the Pharisees' timeline. That our story often becomes the Pharisees' story. Because there is a very particular and not small group of Catholics and of Christians that believe once I've gotten out of habitual mortal sin, I'm not falling into sins of lust, I'm not falling into drugs, I'm not falling into drunkenness, I'm not missing Sunday Mass, I'm not doing any kind of theft, I'm no longer cheating on tests, whatever it is. I'm no longer doing all these things. That because I'm not doing these things, therefore, I love God. I'm good. Everything is fine. And there's nothing about that that impl implies that I love Jesus Christ. That only shows that I'm self-disciplined. Again, as Jesus says, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees if you are to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Did the Pharisees ever miss prayer? No. They were praying all the time. Did the Pharisees keep the law? Largely, yes. Maybe the small things they broke, but they kept the law. But the problem with the Pharisees is that their hearts grew cold and that their righteousness became about them. And the glory of God became for them an enemy rather than the reason why they began to love. And so the question then is how do we get out of this spiritual blindness? We who may fall into this group, we're not falling into habitual mortal sin, but our hearts have grown cold, and we act only for our own glory. We heard in this second reading that Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Oftentimes we think the spiritual life is just this grasping at equality with God. I just need to get there. He did not deem equality with God something to grasp at. Rather, he emptied himself and took the form of a slave. I think of that, but I also can't not think of this one address that Mother Teresa has to her own religious sisters. It's a letter that she writes them that the opening words should floor us. 
she's writing to women that have taken on the discipline of poverty, chastity, obedience, much more than the discipline of Sunday Mass obligation. This is what she says to them, the opening line, and I'll end my homily with this quote, with this letter. I worry that some of you have still not really met Jesus, one-to-one, you and him alone. Jesus wants me to tell you again how much is the love he has for each one of you, beyond all that you can imagine. We may spend time in chapel, but have you seen with the eyes of your soul how he really looks at you with love? Do you really know the living Jesus, not just from reading, but from being with him in your heart? Have you heard the loving words he speaks to you? Never give up on this daily intimate contact with Jesus as a real living person, not just an idea. How can we last even one day living our life without hearing Jesus say, I love you? Impossible. Our soul needs that as much as the body needs to breathe the air. If not, prayer is dead. Meditation is only thinking. Jesus wants you each to hear him speaking in the silence of your heart. Not only he loves you, even more he longs for you. He misses you when you don't come close. He thirsts for you. He loves you always, even when you don't feel worthy. Even if you are not accepted by others, even by yourself sometimes, he's the one who always accepts you. Why does Jesus say, I thirst? What does it mean? Something so hard to explain in words. If you remember anything from my letter, remember this. I thirst is something much deeper than just Jesus saying, I love you. Until you know deep inside that Jesus thirsts for you, you can't begin to know who he wants to be for you. Or who he wants you to be. He knows your weakness. He wants only your love. Wants only the chance to love you.